Thank you. All right, I forgot to ask for the music stand ahead of time, so. So my name is Evan Thibodeau. Um, For those of you that do not know me, I have the privilege to work with our youth um, week in and week out. Um, And likewise, I'd just like to say, for those that I haven't met before, welcome. For those that I have met before, welcome as well. It's just such a joy to get to worship with this group on Sunday mornings. And so thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. You know, this week, um, as I was prepping, I, I ran across an article um, that struck me. It's out of Boston, Massachusetts. Let me read it for you. Uh, local believer Anthony Smith announced to his weekly Bible study group Tuesday morning that he is just not feeling called right now to exhibit the Christian virtue of charity in his personal walk with Christ, sources confirmed. I've really been keeping the idea in prayer for the last few years, Smith reportedly said, but I just haven't felt a mystical sense in my heart that the Lord wants me to be generous with the healthy salary he's blessed me with. Don't get me wrong. I'm totally opening to giving to the less fortunate, but I'm just not sure it's God's plan for me right now. If only he had some way of revealing his will to us, he added. Smith further added that should the Lord make it clear to him that he is to give generously and seek justice for the world's orphans and widows, he will definitely get on that right away. There are lots of Christians who have the spiritual gift of generosity, and that's great, he said. But for me, until I hear it from the Lord himself, and I mean audibly, using my full name, I guess I have no choice but to keep spending my money on myself. I don't want to get ahead of God's will, of course. Most of you have probably realized by now that thankfully that is satire. That comes from a satirical Christian website known as the Babylon Bee. Some of you have probably heard of it before. But what I think is dangerous is that it actually points towards some realities that can kind of creep in for us, and is quite true of the parable that we're going to be looking at today. In fact, the man in the parable that we look at, I think, actually believes nearly all of these things that Anthony has said. And so, I think this is difficult for us because it, it points towards a blind spot in our culture, namely wealth. And like any blind spot, it's hard for us because by definition, it's something that we are not able to see. And so I think when we have something like this that confronts us, we have the, the challenge that we are likely to do what we saw the Pharisees do last week, and simply justify ourselves before men, and not allow this truth from Scripture, this truth from God, to come and impact us deeply, to cause us to seek introspection and to look at where we actually are when it comes to the things that God has given us. My prayer for us today is that God would soften our hearts, that God would make us quick to respond to his word. And so, Let me pray to that accord. 
Heavenly Father, you are such a good and gracious God to us. You bless us in ways immeasurable. You have given us so much, and you have given us your word to teach us about who you are and to show us how to live. Lord, I pray that you would make us those who are moldable by your word, that we would be attentive to your spirit. We would not harden our hearts, but we would change as you lead. I pray for me also, Lord, that I I would not water down your word, and neither would I step beyond it. Lord, help me to speak your word clearly today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our passage this week builds directly on the context from last week. Last week, Jesus was speaking directly to his disciples, telling the parable of the dishonest steward. And ultimately, that parable gave us the, the point of that parable is that there is a way to use money that brings about an eternal reward, and the way that we use our money is an indicator of whether our heart, or of where our heart is in relation to God. And although Jesus had been speaking directly to the disciples, there were others around uh, who were listening in. And we're told that among those were the Pharisees. And towards the end of the passage from last week, the focus actually shifts. Jesus moves his attention from the disciples to now begin looking towards the Pharisees. And that's where that focus will continue all the way through the passage that we're looking at today. But before we get to our passage, I want to just read a few of the verses from last week's to make sure that we have the right context in mind. Um, For those of you that want to start turning there, we're in Luke chapter 16. And so last week we looked at this, verse 9, it says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Skip on a little bit, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So we've just seen an example of how wealth should be used. Unrighteous wealth, as Luke described it, should be used for eternal purposes. It can be used in such a way as to make friends who welcome us into eternal dwellings. And we've seen also how the Pharisees respond to this idea. They they ultimately, they scoff at it. They instead justify themselves before men, ignoring the counsel of God. Now, the parable we're about to look at puts the position of the Pharisees in black and white for us. It displays the ultimate end of that position, which we'll come to see is torment in hell. All of us, whether rich or poor, are stewards of God's money. And God has a specific understanding of how his money ought to be used. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please open them with me to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. 
Uh, If you're looking along in our Bibles, you'll find our passage on page 876. And also, if you don't happen to have a Bible of your own, or if you just like ours, please feel free to take that with you as our gift to you. I want us to read all the way through this passage as a whole in order to make sure that we get the total context together. We have the total idea, and then we're going to slowly work through it and kind of break it down. But if you would, please follow along with me. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, nor that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Our story today has two main characters, the rich man and Lazarus, and two main contexts. The first part can be broken up into the time that we see the rich man and Lazarus in this life, and then secondarily, the rich man and Lazarus in the afterlife. So let's jump in and take a closer look at who these two main characters are. And I want you to notice, too, that although the rich man and Lazarus both play an important role, the focus here, what we're supposed to be paying attention to primarily, is the rich man and what we see about him. Lazarus, in some ways, is kind of a supporting character to kind of juxtapose the rich man with. So verse 19 says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The picture we have of these two characters is pretty intense and descriptive. If you notice the rich man, his life is lavish. Just listen to the description of his clothes. He's clothed in purple and fine linen. And let me make a point to explain what this means. Some of you probably already realize this, but purple was a difficult color to get back then. It's not like today when clothes cost the same no matter what color you get. 
Purple was a dye that required an immense amount of time and energy to produce, and thus it was an unbelievably expensive material to make. In fact, that's why we think of purple often as being associated with royalty, and there were even times when only royalty was allowed to wear purple. So this would be a very, very expensive outer garment. The, the fine linen, this would be a, a very fine white piece of clothing, and actually it would have been an undergarment, I guess an undershirt, or maybe in this case an under robe. Um, but it would have been a bright, brilliant white and probably would have cost almost as much as this robe itself. And these, these materials are so expensive that if you had even just one of these, or you just had the, the purple outer robe or just the, the fine white undergarment, it was obvious that you had money. But to have them both was a statement of wealth kind of beyond belief. Just imagine, it's kind of, you can see this, the white undershirt and how it pops with the bright purple on top. It's, it's noticeable. It doesn't stop there either, right? We're told that he feasted sumptuously every day. And when we're talking about feasting, think about uh, the parable of the prodigal son and the feast that is thrown for him when he comes back. This is luxurious eating, killing the fatted calf, enjoying the most, the best. And This isn't something that happens every once in a while. Like, it's clear in Scripture that God had set up different times for feasts, and there's reasons to feast, and that's a great thing, and something that people are encouraged to do with the right heart and for the right purpose. But this is feasting that is normative in every single day. Beyond that, we also hear that the rich man has a gate, which not everyone has a gate. This is pointing towards he's got this large estate, There is no denying that he has an immeasurable amount of wealth, and the things that he does, the clothing he wears, the feasting that he participates in, are all to point people towards noticing him. It all points towards the fact that he is someone who has wealth and uses it for himself. Now this is juxtaposed so greatly with the picture we see of Lazarus right next to him, right? It's hard to think of two pictures that are more different and yet also in such close proximity. We're told that at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Lazarus is actually like thrown at his gate is the way that word is explained. So he is at the feet of the rich man. And yet, the idea that he is laid there indicates that likely he has some sort of disability that would even keep him from being able to move on his own. He's also covered with sores. He is uncomfortable. He is dirty. He's described as being poor. The definitive characteristic of Lazarus is that he is poor. He is so poor that the idea of the scraps of food that fall to the ground beneath the rich man's table, that is appetizing. He is hungry. He is in need. And to, to add insult to injury, even the dogs lick his sores. And when we talk about dogs here, don't think puppies, okay? This is not cute. This is not sweet. This is a different culture. And in that culture, Dogs are not 
Latalia Pond. Rather, think of the dirtiest, mangiest, patchy hair, skin falling off, gross mongrel that you can picture. And realize also that these dogs would have been unclean ritually, and that by licking Lazarus, they're making him more unclean than he already is. Lazarus is an outsider in almost every sense in the world. He is, he is poor to the extreme. And so, we need to notice that. They could not be any more different. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In life, they could not be more different, even in the way that they die. You notice the difference. Lazarus is just carried away. There's no proper burial for him. Whereas the rich man, because of his money, there is. But then, the places where they're brought is very different. The the tides are turned. The poor man ends up at Abraham's side. He ends up in heaven, whereas the rich man, he ends up in Hades being in torment. I want us to notice one key thing right here, and that is the radical insufficiency of wealth for bringing about lasting joy. The rich man's wealth may have made his time on earth more enjoyable, but even if that was the case, which there's reasons why that might not be, it doesn't last to eternity. Wealth cannot bring about joy that lasts beyond this earth when used for yourself alone. The rich man begins to call out. He says, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. It's interesting. Even after death, the rich man's opinion of himself hasn't changed. He's still in the place where he sees Lazarus over there in heaven by Abraham and thinks that Lazarus is someone who should just do his bidding. He's in anguish here, and he calls out to him, send Lazarus to serve me, to bring a drop of water to quench my thirst. Even in this state, even when the rich man is in hell, he still doesn't realize just how self-centered he is, just how focused on himself. Another thing we should notice, now this, this is not the point of this parable to tell us about heaven and hell, but it deals with the afterlife and it points us to some truths there that I think are important to notice. Namely, it points out to us that there is such a thing as heaven and hell. Now, a parable isn't the best for this because a parable isn't necessarily talking in literal terms, but a parable is only helpful if it points towards realities. And so the realities that it points to is that heaven is a place of comfort and fulfillment, and hell is a place of pain and suffering. 
And you know that these aren't literal. The parable only does it justice if the truths that it points to are actually more real than what the parable seems to display. Heaven is real, and hell is real. And once you get there, it's final. There's no ability to change your decision after death. At death, it's set in stone. That's why he describes there being a chasm between the two places. You cannot go from here to there. Abraham has responded to the rich man kindly. He calls him child, but he's also firm. And yet, the rich man doesn't seem to fully understand what he's pointing towards. He realizes that his opportunity for change is now gone. But he still is looking for more change, and he's still looking to justify himself. Continue. Verse 26. Sorry, actually a little bit farther on. Verse 27, the rich man responds to Abraham, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This part I think is interesting. It seems like maybe the rich man now is actually starting to think about others a little bit more. And that's partly true. He seems to show an interest in trying to help out his family, pointing towards, okay, well, go at least send someone to them. Warn them. But notice, too, that it's, it's really not that much more. He's still only concerned with his family. He still shows no respect for Lazarus, once again treating Lazarus as someone who should just go and do his bidding, going to send him, going to, to help him there. And then Abraham's response is interesting. Abraham tries to point out that they don't need someone to be sent They have the law and the prophets. Basically, they have the word of God that points to them the truths about how to know God, how to have eternal life, how to live justly and rightly. But they haven't listened to it. And the rich man goes one step further. No, Abraham, if you would simply send someone, that would be enough. That would actually change their mind. And I want you to notice the subtlety in the rich man's request because what he's really saying here and what I think he's trying to point out is he says, look, I didn't have this chance. If someone had come to me from the dead, if someone had come and told me what I needed to do to receive eternal life, well, I wouldn't be in this predicament. Do you notice what he's doing? He's continue to say it's not his fault that he's in hell. He's saying if only he had enough evidence. Even at this point, he still will not admit his own sin, his own guilt before a righteous and holy God. And the way that Abraham responds to him the second time is intense. Now, what the rich man has been asking for is simply for someone, someone from heaven, to go maybe in a dream, 
appear to his brothers, maybe as a ghost. But Abraham responds that even if someone was to actually come back from the dead, come back to life, be raised, live again just as we are now, even that would not persuade them if they don't listen to the law and the prophets. Think about that, especially with the readers of Luke's gospel. Jesus has already done that, and they've seen that the Pharisees still didn't believe often. Jesus did rise again, and still so many people do not believe, even with that sign. But the law and the prophets, Scripture is sufficient for telling us how to be saved. Scripture is sufficient for letting us know who God is. Scripture is sufficient for knowing how we should live. Guys, that is amazing. This book that we have is life. This book is better than having someone come back from the dead to tell you. And what Abraham wants us to realize is that no amount of sign is going to cause us to believe this if we don't have hearts that are softened toward God's truth revealed herein. If we're not willing to listen to this, we won't listen to anything. So what is the big point of this passage? What is Jesus trying to get across? Now, if we remember the context that we're in here, right, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, who he says are lovers of money, who justify themselves before men. What Jesus is trying to show is that the way the way that we use our stuff ultimately reveals our heart. He points toward this rich man who has the world's goods and he experiences all that the world has to offer in that. He uses all of his wealth for himself even though there is great need just right at his gate. We, we know that he knew about Lazarus we know that because he calls out to him by name. And yet, throughout this entire parable, we hear that he has done nothing for him. He has immeasurable opportunity, immeasurable means to care for Lazarus and ignores him completely. The way we use our stuff reveals our heart. And I want us to be careful, though. Jesus isn't saying that wealth is sinful. Now, notice, the person that Lazarus ends up next to is Abraham, someone who was wealthy beyond imagination. He was blessed with so many things, and ultimately, that blessing clearly came from God. God was the one that blessed him, and that's not seen as a condemnation on Abraham. Rather, Abraham is in heaven. He's the father of the faith. The condemnation is on what we believe wealth is for, and that's the question we should be asking. What is the purpose of our wealth? 
Thinking about Abraham is a great example for that because as God blesses Abraham, he says that you are blessed to be a blessing. The purpose of the wealth that God has given us is is definitely to provide for our needs. But even more so, God gives us wealth so that we might bless others, so that we might display God's goodness to those around us. And so this passage forces us to consider what are we doing with the things that God has given us, whether that is wealth, whether that is our talents, our gifts, our time. Are we stewarding those for kingdom purposes? Are we simply using those for ourselves to make much of us? I also don't want to move on too quickly and generalize this too much because there is a point that Jesus seems to be making in reference to the poor specifically. The fact that Lazarus is poor and the way that he is described is very careful. The truth is, is that the poor matter to God and what we do with the poor really matters. I think of Jesus when he first began his ministry in Luke 4.18. He's in Nazareth and he reads from Isaiah. He says, He has sent me to proclaim good news to the poor. The poor are close to the heart of God and how we respond to the poor matters. As Christians, we are supposed to be those that are a part of proclaiming this good news to the poor. And ultimately, that good news isn't just about this life. Ultimately, that's, that's good news for the next life. But as part of bringing the kingdom now, we have to be caring for the poor and displaying what is to come through that. When we think about stewardship generally, it's often a hard topic for us to think about because it's often phrased in kind of the ways that it is in this passage. It's that, which is ultimately kind of from a negative perspective. In this case, we see what not to do in the case of the rich man. And we are looking at the dangers of loving money. And that's helpful for for us to notice, but I also don't want to miss the fact that stewardship is something that we as Christians should be excited about. It is something that should bring us much joy and something that we should be just so grateful to God that he gives us an opportunity to use the things that he's given us for making his name known among the, among the nations, for God's greatest glory, for our greatest good, and for our joy. And so I want to take a little bit of time now just to think through nine reasons for us to be generous. Number one, being generous is a way for us to store up treasures in heaven. Luke 12, 33 puts this pretty plainly. It says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. We're able to use our wealth now to store up treasure in heaven. We know that we can't take it with us, but we can send it ahead. Luke 16, 9 points to the same idea, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. 
right? The story of the rich man also points us towards the radical insufficiency for wealth to produce eternal joys. The question we're left with, will we choose good things now or later? I think of an illustration that one of my favorite authors, Randy Alcorn, gives. He says, live for the line, not for the dot. And the idea he's pointing to is this. In math, right, if you have a graph, you can have a point on that graph, and you can have a vector, which by definition goes off from that point for eternity. And so what Randy Alcorn is saying is that that dot is our time on earth right now, and that line represents eternity. And what's interesting is that what we do with our time in the dot affects the line. We're able to store up treasures now for eternity by what we do with our wealth here and now. Live for the line, not for the dot. Number two, generosity is a sure investment. Okay, this one should be big for us, right? The, the stock market is crazy. Investments, the first rule, there is never a sure investment. Listen to Luke 12, 33 again. Focus on something else from this passage, though. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. By giving to the needy, by stewarding our wealth for kingdom's sake, we're able to have an investment that will never fail. Money bags that don't grow old, it does not fail. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. This is a sure bet. Don't miss out on this one, guys. Number three, generosity transforms your heart. Luke 12, 34, just one verse beyond, says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The things that we give to, the places that we put our money, our heart goes right along with it. As we put our money in things that make much of us, guess where our heart ends up? It ends up self-focused. As we give toward the needs of the poor, as we give towards world missions and evangelization, our heart goes right along with it. And our concerns and our care ends up aligning more with God as we give towards the things that God cares about. Number four, joy now. Generosity avails us an immeasurable amount of joy even now. Luke 18, 29 through 30 says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Or Matthew 13, 44 says, I love this passage. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. When we realize the treasure that Christ is, it is a joy for us to give anything for the sake of having him. It's a joy not just for then, but a joy for now. Number five, generosity demonstrates a trust and confidence in God's provision, not in our own self-reliance. Luke 12, 24 says, Consider the ravens. 
They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? As we are generous, we are forced to rely more on God's provision for us than just our own ability to provide for ourselves. I think of one of my heroes of the faith, George Mueller, who basically as quickly as God gave him money, he gave it away and had to constantly trust God to provide not just for himself, but at times over a thousand orphans that were in his care. What an opportunity to trust God as we seek to be generous even to the point of hardship. Number six, generosity is an opportunity to partner in the gospel going forth. This one should get you guys excited. Luke 8, 1 through 3, tells an interesting part of Jesus' ministry that I think we probably often miss. It says, Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also, notice this, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Do you guys catch that? Jesus and the disciples' ministry was financed by a group of women who were using the money that God had given them in order to (laughs) support Jesus and the disciples so they could focus on ministry and not have to worry about provision. How exciting is that? Or think about Philippians. Looking at the beginning and the end, actually. Philippians 1, 3 through 5 says this. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says the Philippian church has been partners with him in the gospel from the beginning. And now the question we have to ask is, how did they partner with him? They weren't with him on these missionary journeys. What did they do? At the end of the letter, we find out what their partnership consisted of. Chapter 4, verse 15 says this, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. The, part, the way that the Philippian church, that Paul points out that they were partnering with him, was through giving. Giving is a way for us to partner, partner with those who are bringing the gospel forth to other places when we can't go ourselves. That is exciting. Number seven, generosity helps us to bear more fruit by avoiding the cares, riches, and pleasures of this life. Luke eight fourteen in the parable of the sower says this, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Wealth isn't bad in itself, but there is a danger that goes along with wealth that can lend it to affecting our hearts and causing us to love money. Generosity is an opportunity to fight that. Generosity keeps our heart heart softened and keeps us loving God, not money. Number eight, 
when we give to the poor, we are ultimately giving to God. Matthew 25, 40 says, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And number nine, how could we not be generous when we realize that Christ gave everything for us? How could we not give from the blessings that he has given us when we realize everything we have is given to us by him and Jesus gave everything for us in paying our price, in buying our lives through his death on the cross. And I want to be careful here in all of this, right? Generosity is not a means of making ourselves right before God. We're not pushing that this is how we're made right with God. Rather, we are only made right with God by trusting in the work that Jesus has done for us before we could do anything for ourselves. But when we fully understand the weight of what Jesus has done for us, how could we not respond and live differently? To live the same is to quench what God is doing in our hearts. We must respond to what God has done for us. As we consider all of this, let me give us some questions to ask ourselves as we seek to prayerfully process what we've discussed today. Let's ask ourselves this. How do I use the stuff that God has given me? Does it reveal a heart that loves God and people? Or does it reveal a heart that loves self? This question I've been having to wrestle with over the past couple of weeks. I, I would say over the past couple of weeks, I've delved more into my finances than I probably have in over a year. Just realizing that I want to be careful to say, like, what are the priorities in my life? This word points towards the fact that where my money goes are my priorities. Does my money actually reflect, reflect what I believe to be true about me? Am I someone who is marked by radical generosity because of what Christ has done for me? Question number two. Do the needs of others move me to compassionate action? As I read through this parable, I can't help but think of 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. John writes, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The truth is most of us do not have a Lazarus at our gate. But we do live in a very strange time. We live in likely the wealthiest country ever to exist. While at the same time, we have an ability to see 
need and poverty throughout the world to a greater degree and with a greater clarity than was ever thought possible. I think right now about the refugee crisis. Think of, you know, these stats are a little bit older from 2015, but in 2015, there were 65.3 million forcibly displaced people. These are people that have been forced to move out of their homes, either still in country or also out of country. There were 21.3 million refugees, those are then who have been actually forced to leave their countries. 10 million of those are stateless people that they have no country that will call them their own, which puts them in an unbelievably difficult place where they are vulnerable and have basically no one that is fighting for them. And out of all those numbers in 2015, only 107,100 refugees were resettled. So only around 100,000 of those people were resettled. Think also of child mortality rates in the world. Also in 2015, around 5.9 million children under the age of five died. That ends up being 16,000 every single day. And most of this is from, of preventable causes. We're able to see the plight of the poor in our world in 4K detail. What will we do? As Christians, we're care, we are called to care about all suffering, but most of all, eternal suffering. An unreached people group is defined as an ethnic group with an indigenous, or sorry, without an indigenous self-propagating Christian church movement. Basically, an unreached people, those that are in that category, will live and die without ever having the opportunity to hear the gospel. Today, it's estimated there's around 3 billion unreached people. And currently, the ratio of missionaries to unreached, missionaries that are working among unreached people groups, the ratio of those missionaries to the amount of people in those groups is one missionary for every 216,300 people. It's immense. To try to understand that ratio, that would be like having one hot dog vendor for eight Dodger stadiums. It just doesn't work. What will we do with the information we have, with the wealth that we have? I wonder if God hasn't blessed us for this. Our country has more wealth than we could ever know what to do with, and the world has more needs. Maybe God has blessed us for such a time. Question number three, is my heart submitted to God's word, or do I require external signs to believe and follow it? Where do we find ourselves when we read God's word? Are we those that have hearts that are softened to obey when we see something true in Scripture? Or do we find ourselves that we read something and we just continue to feel like, I need more evidence. 
I want to urge us that as we see truths in God's word, that we quickly obey, that we don't harden our hearts to it. In light of all this, what are we to do? I wonder, can you bring up some resources? There is so much to be thinking about here, like way more than we can ever talk about on one Sunday. And so I just encourage you, if this is getting you thinking about these things, is starting to like stir in your heart, these are some great places to go to keep thinking about it. Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn is probably about 80 pages, super short, take you less than a day to read. How to Manage God's Money by Randy Alcorn, more in depth, but just so helpful. Gospelpatrons.org is a website devoted to, in some ways, raising awareness towards radical generosity that's going on around the world as an encouragement to think of, how can I be a part of giving generously? How can I be defined by that? You'll find that to be such an encouragement through the stories there. And also, read, read Luke 12. It's great. If you're wanting to do more, dive into that. Take a look at what God's Word says about wealth and the things that He has given us. As we conclude today, I just want to be rem- reminding us about these truths. Right? The way that we use our stuff reveals our heart. Scripture is sufficient for salvation and for teaching us how to live. Heaven and hell are real and final. As we think about these truths, it should cause us to live differently. It should cause us to respond to God's word. And I pray that we do that. When we consider such great need in the world and such great wealth in the West, maybe that's because God desires us to be about preaching good news to the poor. He desires us to be using the wealth that he has given us to be demonstrating what that good news looks like to them. He desires us to be defined by radical generosity in a way that is attractive and demonstrates that we are different. We don't live for the purposes of the world. We are able to live for something so much greater than wealth. We can live for God. We can live our lives radically, living generously for him. Would you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your word. The fact that you point us towards your truths over and over again, that that we're not stuck trying to figure out on our own how to live this life, but rather you have given us a book that displays so clearly how we might live. And it's not so that we might live a hard life that is painful, but it's because it's for our greatest good. Lord, I pray that as we, we see your word, that we would see that if we follow it, that's where we're going to find the most joy and satisfaction. God, don't let us get distracted by the lies that the world tells us about what will make us happy. You made us, you know us. Let us look to you to understand who we are and how we are created to live. Father, we love you and we trust you with our lives. In your son's name we pray, amen.